Before I begin, I would like to acknowledge that this work was developed and is presented on the unceded territory of the Lenape people. I wish to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome back to the Community Library, a podcast and book club for anyone interested in stories and how and why we tell them. I'm your host, Angowry Rice. And I'm Kate Rice. This week, in keeping with the Halloween theme, we're going to be talking about something that is pretty scary right now, and that is a pandemic. (laughs) But not the coronavirus pandemic. No, no, no. We will be talking about the pandemic that happened just over 100 years ago, the 1918 flu pandemic. And to tie this all into books and storytelling, we're specifically going to talk about the performing arts industry during the pandemic. So to talk about this, I have invited my very own mother as a guest on this podcast. Kate Rice is a writer and doctor of philosophy, and most recently the inaugural winner of the Frank Van Stratton Fellowship at Arts Centre Melbourne. With this fellowship, she has created a podcast to showcase the Arts Centre Melbourne's historical collection, including an episode all about the Australian performing arts industry during the flu pandemic of 1918. So, welcome. Thank you for having me. Could you please um, introduce us to your research project and how you kind of approached it and then maybe talk a little bit more specifically about the episode on 1919? When I applied for this fellowship, that was way back in October, November 2019. You know, before any of us really had considered the word coronavirus, you know, at that point, the idea of a pandemic was um, limited to our experiences of maybe bird flu or swine flu in the 90s, early 2000s. So for me, certainly it was something that was a little theoretical, a little bit something that happened somewhere else. Um, Certainly nothing that had ever impacted my life. Anyway, so I applied for this research fellowship to research the Australian Performing Arts Collection. By the time I was awarded the fellowship, things weren't looking good in China. By the time I was supposed to start the fellowship, actually my very first day of the fellowship was the first day of restrictions in Australia and I wasn't allowed to go in. So they had planned fabulous morning tea for me and nobody went. This was the point where I still hadn't had access to the collection and I I didn't know exactly what I was going to research. I was going to kind of look at the collection and pick out whatever attracted me. You know, that was my plan to kind of go in there, look through all the items they have. They've got this huge collection of Australian performing arts memorabilia across the years, covering opera, ballet, theatre, bit of film, bit of television. Um, They have costumes, they have set designs, they have programs, scrapbooks, they've got scripts, they've got so much stuff there and and my plan was just to go in and see what attracted me but um, as it turned out I couldn't go in at all because of the pandemic which got me thinking what was going on in the Australian performing arts scene when there was a pandemic in 1919 1918 1918 so that's how I came to decide on researching that topic and I did have a research assistant or you know the research officer in the collection was still able to get into it so with her help and working together with her we kind of unearthed everything that we could that brought out that story. When you were researching kind of that 
that time period, I guess we're going to get into performing arts and, you know, storytelling in a little bit, but on the more, I guess, world history side of things, you know, how did the flu pandemic come to Australia? Was it strange kind of researching that because we were also living through it a hundred years later? It really was, and certainly it was strange to be looking at it at that, at that time, especially because the word unprecedented was being thrown around a lot. <laughs> Everything was unprecedented. And what I what became very apparent as soon as you start looking at the history of the Spanish flu pandemic is that it was very, very similar, <laughs> that Australia initially didn't have any cases, that it wasn't here. It sort of came out of the, the aftermath of World War One when there were a lot of... Um, a lot of dispossessed people, a lot of people moving around, people who'd been in the war, who'd been nursing or who'd been fighting in the war, then moving around countries and being together in close proximity. So that's how it really moved very fast across the Northern Hemisphere in 1918. But it hadn't come to Australia, but Australia knew what had happened. Mm. So what they did, they set up a quarantine system. So every ship that arrived in Australia would have to quarantine. But there was a quarantine station at Sydney, so so ships that arrived would stay there at sort of at the, the heads of Sydney Harbour, so they weren't allowed in, they weren't allowed contact with anyone, and they would have to stay there until it was established that there was no flu on board. So it's basically exactly what happened in Australia the second time round as well. Same thing happened that time as well, that it, that it got away from them, that, that there were cases that escaped from quarantine or that there were ships that possibly didn't quarantine properly, I'm not sure. But the cases got out, and once again... At that time, same as what happened this time, there was a lot of finger pointing and a lot of kind of drama and conflict going on between the states because the first case appeared to turn up in Victoria, but Victoria didn't declare it straight away and that person went to New South Wales and started the infections there. Although, of course, at that time they didn't have the kinds of testing that we have now, so it was a bit harder to exactly pinpoint who, when, where why but there was a lot of um there was border closures straight up and and blaming i mean this time round there was kind of a, an immediate panic and fear that set in with panic buying and i mean i guess there's always there's always a spectrum of of how much people panic and some people were panicking and some people were like oh this will be over in a month a lot of industries have been hit pretty hard but performing arts has been one that has really been hit hard because it depends on audiences it depends on big gatherings of people, just like sport, just like live music events. I think, you know, there's a lot of despair about the future of performing arts and how performing arts and theatre can get through this. And in your research of the flu pandemic and specifically tied to performing arts in Australia, what was that relationship like? How did people frame that discussion around performing arts? Certainly at that time, it was similar to now that performing arts was first hit. This time there's more about tourism than there seemed to be then, I think because the tourism industry, you know, things like airlines did not exist. There wasn't as much international tourism or even as much domestic tourism as there is now. So at that time, the two big industries were performing arts and and hospitality. So, you know, pubs and pubs and restaurants, I think. So they were they were both hit pretty hard and they both initially were upset and indignant and there was a bit of that sort of feeling of this is just arbitrary. Uh, also, there was a lot of talk about compensation, that there should be some kind of government compensation or support for those industries that were, that were disproportionately hit, same as now. So that was all the same as it is, has been now. I think the big difference that has emerged now is that 
this pandemic is going on longer and the closures are lasting longer. So in, in Australia, the closures were not as long for the Spanish flu. It certainly affected the, the whole run of the industry for the entire year, but the closures were proportionately much shorter. I, th I think they, they did feel that they were able to bounce back also because then they didn't have the competition of um, at-home entertainment. So mm. as soon as the theatres opened again, people went back out because they had nothing to watch at home. In figuring out, you know, what to what to say with your podcast and, and what to specifically focus on in the episode, how did you come across this particular production, which I'm sure you'll introduce and talk more about, and this particular performer? Why did you choose to tell their story during the pandemic? The inspiration behind this podcast series was always to talk about the performance and what it was like. What, you know, what was that experience to go and see a show at any particular time? So I was choosing what was it like to go and see a show during the Spanish flu when that was on? What was going on? What was happening? So I was always looking for a particular production. I didn't know which one. So I started looking at all of the different shows that were on and found that there was a lot. There was a lot going on. Um, so uh, I was struggling a little at first to work out which show to choose. But there were two big pantomimes on at the time. So a pantomime is a big show for families. They would usually follow the form of a fairy tale. There would always be two women in the lead roles called the principal boy and the principal girl, always played by women. And they would sing and the story would follow, you know, for example, one of them was... Jack and Jill. So it was a little bit, you know, Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. That was sort of the basic tent of the of the show, but it didn't really, you know, the story was always pretty meandering and not necessarily a story that you would follow. It was more like a series of set pieces. Um, the other feature was that there was always a very, very funny man dressed up as a woman who played the dame. And it's always fun, always for children, families, good family, clean entertainment. So those, that's the features of the pantomime. So there were two of them on, which jumped out at me because they seemed so incredibly theatrical and outrageous and like nothing I've ever seen. Mm. They had a cast of 300 people each or more. They had huge set pieces of children's ballets and, and, um, and many, many dancers, many, many costumes, lots of costume changes. They had international stars. They had international acts like acrobats who came from America. So these were huge productions. I felt if you've got that many people working on a show together in close proximity, surely at least one of those shows, they must have had somebody get sick. So I started following all of the press for each of those shows. And eventually, it took me a while, but I got there and found <laughs> that the lead actress in the show Goody Two Shoes did get influenza. And they did try to cover it up, but it came out. So from that point, you had found the show Goody Two Shoes and you had found May D'Souza, who was the principal boy in Goody Two Shoes who got influenza and they tried to cover it up. So from there, you had who you wanted to talk about. And, and I don't I don't want to give away, you know, what's in the episode because we want people to go and listen to the episode. Of course, there'll be links in the show notes and you can listen to it after this or even pause it now and listen to it now. But um, so without giving too much away about about May's story, because you go through that in the episode. What was the experience like of, of following the story of a performing artist 100 years ago living through a pandemic? Kind of very strange parallels. It was a beautiful experience. Um, you feel a little bit like a, um, like a detective because you've got, you've got to trawl through a lot of information. 
I had lots of books and then I, I was going through all of the, the newspaper reports, you know, doing searches on her name just to find everything I possibly could about her. I had never heard of her before, but she, she was quite a significant figure. So there was a, a bit of information about her that had been put together by other people. But because I followed it sequentially, I felt that I gradually got to know her and I felt that that I was becoming her friend, which is kind of weird um, because we were also going through the same experience. Like we were, we were also confronted with, with a global health emergency. Also working in the performing arts, you know, I felt that we could really relate. And so I, I feel very protective of Maida Souza and very close to her. And I would encourage everyone to you know, I'd love it if you listen to my podcast, but also if you if you just type in her name and see some of the beautiful pictures of her, she's really a very, um, she was a charismatic looking performer. There was a point in your research process in April or June or something where I was moping around the house as an out of work actor thinking, oh God, I've got nothing to do. I'm so bored. And you said, well, why don't you help me with this project and look through some of these old newspapers, just do a search on Maida Souza's name, go through every single one and write down the ones that are important. And so I did that and I helped you with that. You know, from my end, like obviously I didn't research the whole thing and I was just kind of trawling through old newspapers, which by the way, was hilarious the some of the articles that were published in these papers are absolutely ridiculous um so you know trolling through those and and also following may's story sequentially um yeah i also felt such a strange personal connection to her and it would be like such a joy to just discover an interview like an actual interview leading up to the to the show you know, they allowed a journalist in and then we'd actually get real quotes from her. And it was like, it was like meeting her for the first time, you know, hearing her voice. It was such a, yeah, such a bizarrely intimate experience to follow someone's journey like that. And also, yeah, I felt very connected to her because she was, you know, working in performing arts during a pandemic and we're both here now in America. (laughs) Um, And I am also working in the performing arts during a pandemic. And it's bizarre. It's bizarre how it feels like, you know, history, history has repeated itself. I think too, with, we were very lucky to hit on Maida Souza as well, because she, her story turned out to have a few more twists and turns in it that I wasn't expecting. You know, I feel feel that the story kept giving. Like it wasn't just, oh, here she is. Here's this performer who came to Australia to perform and got influenza. Um, there was more to it, and I was I was discovering new things about her right up until the point when I actually completed the episode, which was very exciting. This isn't something that I really wrote down in my notes, but something I just thought about now. In your PhD, your PhD is about the ethics of writing about real events, um, and in your PhD, you focus on murders specifically. But in this case, you know, you are writing about a real event that that isn't a murder, but um, it's similar ethics involved. In terms of May D'Souza, could you talk a bit about that? Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's a big topic, but I do believe, well, I know that however, however objective and however wide your perspective is and however much you know about the world and everything, your perspective is still your own perspective. I can only... I can only come to Maida Souza's story from the point of view of myself. I can't come come at it from any other way. 
um, I do think it's important to acknowledge that. And I, I think it's important as an artist to think about that with every with everything that you work on, like to think, how am I coming to this? What am I bringing to this? What are my potential blind spots? What are my potential areas of insight? What of value do I have to bring to this story? Um, the other thing that I think is important in telling real stories is to is to think about meaning and think about what what meaning this story has when when you're sort of confronted with the messiness of real life and you're trying to pull it into a story you're actually creating some some meaning out of it and there are many different stories that you can potentially create out of out of this set you know out of that experience of Major Sousa's life even just from that year I feel an ethical responsibility to tell the story that gives the meaning that works towards greater understanding and justice which seems a little heavy but when you are dealing with real stories I I like to keep an awareness of that 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 you're creating meaning that's that has an effect on how we understand the world yeah and that's that's quite a big responsibility as well you know to hold someone's story and in a sense um maybe fictionalize isn't the correct word but you know when you listen to the podcast it is kind of a almost a dramatic reenactment of what might have happened even though you take all of these quotes and primary sources it's never going to be the same it's always an interpretation and that interpretation um, can change the meaning or influence the meaning or place more importance on a specific thing everything I took you know it was documentary like it was real it really happened but I chose the ones that supported what I wanted to say about it So I guess bringing it back from big lofty ideas and theory (laughs) in a a much more practical and uh, factual sense, what what were the similarities of working during a pandemic in 1919 versus in 2020? What happened when Maida Souza got influenza and did they have to quarantine? Did they have to shut down the show? Like, how did that all play out? It's a bit hard to know because they very deliberately kept things pretty much on the down low. In <laughs> fact, when it was the first, it was the final show in Melbourne that both Maida Souza and Dorothy Hastings, two of the lead lead performers, were replaced with their understudies. Mm. And the reviews of that show said that they were indisposed, <laughs> I believe. Right. Um, and it wasn't until sort of reading further weeks later that, that the word influenza was even used. So it seems to me that they just pulled them out. They replaced them immediately with understudies who they had ready to go. And um, and then they went on tour and they left Maida Souza behind. I, I presume they left Dorothy Hastings behind too. Were there restrictions on how they could perform and where they could perform and um, to how many people? And, you know, did they, I mean, a show of 300 people, you can't, I mean, did they have to take out cast members? Like, what? how did they deal with that? Well, at the time, they still weren't, they didn't know exactly how it spread. There was a bit of a miasma, miasma kind of theory that it would hang in the air. So they focused a lot on ventilation and cleaning. So when, when the theatres were opened again, they didn't restrict the numbers, but they did have, um, they, w- they would always say, we clean, you know, it's beautifully clean and lots of ventilation. So they, they talked about keeping it clean. They talked about having some space in the theatre, in the theatres as well for the audiences. Uh, the restrictions were same as, same as, as happening now. They were kind of 
um, the decisions had to be made quickly on a rolling basis depending on what was happening. So the other pantomime, which was called Jack and Jill, was on its way. It was touring to Sydney from Melbourne and had to stay at a quarantine camp at Albury on the border. And they were actually there on their way when um, the border was shut and, oh, no. and Sydney was closed down again so they couldn't go there. So the entire company of 300 people had to turn around and come back to Melbourne. And at that time, Goody Two Shoes, which was also supposed to go to Sydney, went to Adelaide. And Adelaide was very happy about that because otherwise they would never have got to see it. (laughs) As we're going through this again, what is the importance of storytelling during a pandemic and the arts and specifically performing arts and theatre? What kind of lasting impact does it have on us and why is it important to sustain this and support it through a time when it can't necessarily uh, thrive or go on as it has done before? That was one of the questions I kind of came into it wanting to answer. The performing arts industry feels a little under threat. Well, it is under threat. It's under kind of mortal threat. And the immediate question that comes to mind is, well, why why save it? You know, yeah. it's like the aviation industry is under threat. Why save it? The coal industry is under, under threat. Why save it? Like you need to answer those questions. Um, what is it about the performing arts that we need? Why do we need it? What does it do for us? So that's what I went into this story to to discover, you know, what what was it about going to see this show that meant a lot to the people who saw it? That was the kind of the, the question that I was trying to answer for myself. And also it kind of morphed into what is it about this story of the performing arts under threat that will help us remember and know why we need to save the performing arts. And so what's the answer? Did you find it out? Yes, I did. I did. I did find it out. I hope that in listening to this podcast, you will find, I do find a reason why the performing arts is important and that that reason is discovered about why people went to that show, what it did to them, how they felt about it, and that those feelings are still important today. They're still, they're still here for us today. Mm. That feeling that you get when you find a story that you love or a song that you love or a show that moves you. As an artist... And an academic, I guess, I think a lot about the theory behind things and the feelings behind things. And I'm not very good at connecting that with money Mm. and business. And I feel that artists frequently aren't good at articulating that. And we, we are constantly faced with a situation where we do practice our art because we have to, because we love it so much, because we need to. There's something in it that moves us to do it, whether we get paid for it or not, and that this is often interpreted by the world to be evidence that it isn't, that you don't have to pay for it. Mm. In the end, artists have to live as well. Like we, we still have to put food on the table. We still have to pay the bills. We still need a house to live in. Um, and so the way we value the arts in the end, it does have to come down to money too. That is something that, that is missing, you know, that I don't really address in the, in the podcast because I didn't have time. But it is definitely a thing that we've got to think about Uh, now in the world when so many arts organizations and arts institutions and artists are under threat of going under and not being able to practice their art anymore so you got to pay for it thank you very much mummy thank you for talking about this and for taking time out of your busy schedule to (laughs) sorry we're laughing because we're just at home not on a timetable not on a timetable (laughs) 
we have no timetable, so we can make time for whatever we want. If you would like to listen to the episode on May D'Souza, which I highly, highly recommend, it is up on the Art Centre Melbourne website. There will be a link in the description. At this point, there will also be a second episode in the series out, which is about a stage adaptation of a classic Australian book called for the term of his natural life. So you can listen to that one as well. And I can promise you that if you listen to both of those episodes, you will hear my voice. In fact, in the episode on Maida Souza, you will even hear me sing a song. So if that, <laughs> if nothing else convinces you, um, then hopefully that will. So there will be a link in the description for you to go and listen to those episodes. And there will be, I believe, two more forthcoming after that. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for hanging out with me, Mummy. Thank you so much for having me and thank you to all of you fabulous listeners out there who support Angari and her beautiful work about books. Oh, that's so nice. Thank you. Uh, I hope you enjoyed listening. Next week, I will be chatting about our book club pick, which is a mystery thriller called The Trap by Melanie Rabe. That's spelled R-A-A-B-E. So you've still got one week left to read it. Uh, that episode will be out on the 25th, just over a week before Halloween. So getting ready for the spooky season. As always, you can follow me at Angowry Rice on Instagram or at the underscore community underscore library on Instagram. I hope you're all taking good care of yourselves, staying safe during this pandemic, and supporting the performing arts. Bye, everyone. Chat soon.